This is From the Envelope of Suicides, a study of the will to die and the will to live. Episode 4, Man with $6,018 in bank deposit leaps to death from high veranda, in which our narrator examines the situation of the immigrant in wartime New Britain and the vertical dimension of despair. It took me 10 years, but when I finally found the strength or the will or whatever to finally put my grandfather's collection of 124 suicide stories in order, I thought I could read them more as he had read them. I could read them as they'd come to him. If I read them in order, maybe I could see as he saw how the will to die progressively bloomed out into suicide over those seven years growing and changing in what forms it took. Maybe I could see the same trends he saw and who was doing it and where and with what psychological tones. That first suicide story that my grandfather felt compelled to save, I talked about it in the last episode. It was a story of John Smith, the former athlete grown old, the retired restaurateur with no one left for him and nothing left to do who laid on the kitchen floor and quietly filled his lungs with gas. After Dr. Morad was moved by who knows what to save that first one, and once he'd begun scanning the paper each day for more suicides to save, he only had to wait six days before he saw Anna Wasik, who, as the newspaper made a point of saying, was drunk and raving in the middle of the night out in the street, and was screaming and moaning and scantily clad in her stocking feet. The doctor saw her drink disinfectant after a quarrel with her husband over drinking, and the cops forced milk down her throat. How are these two stories about the same thing? If that one word suicide can cover them both, how much can that word possibly mean? So the doctor waited for his third suicide to come, He had to wait more than 10 weeks after Anna's attempt. He had to wait until Thursday, June 26, when he saw this in the top right of the front page of the New Britain Herald. Five hurt in crash in suicide probe. Police car in collision en route to investigation. Man, 62, takes his own life. John Baino of Columbia Street found lifeless on floor of kitchen with gas jets open. Policeman Weir in hospital. The body of John Baino, 62, dead more than 24 hours, was found in the kitchen of his home, third floor at 100 Columbia Street this morning, and Dr. Clifton M. Cooley, acting medical examiner, said death was caused by asphyxiation by illuminating gas, self-inflicted. While going to investigate, policeman Charles Weir and a police cruiser was involved in a crash at Hart and Linwood Streets, and six persons were injured and two machines badly damaged. The injured are Policeman Weir at New Brit, continued on page 11. At the top of the second piece of the story, filling the first three column inches is a photograph of the manly and gentle face of Charles Weir, beneath a puffy police cap turned to the right, so he looks like he's looking slightly to the left. Continued from first page, in General Hospital, 
X-rays showed no broken bones. Mrs. Wilhelmina Case, 82, of the Irwin Home, 140 Bassett Street, back injuries. Mrs. Emma Copeland, 62, of 365 Arch Street, head and back injuries and bruises. Mrs. Helene Sharman of 156 Cherry Street, driver of the other car, shaken up. Mrs. Herman Johnson, 58, of 18 Hart Street, bruises, and Mrs. Joseph Urban, 50, of 82 Rockwell Avenue. After x-rays were taken at the hospital and diagnosis showed policeman Ware had chest and side injuries, he was removed this afternoon to the Veterans Hospital at Newington for further treatment. He is a veteran of the World War. Mrs. Case and Mrs. Copeland remained at New Britain Hospital. Despondent over wife's death. Baino, a 35-year resident and a veteran employee of American Hosiery Company, was despondent over the death of his wife three months ago, and sometime since Tuesday night took his own life by turning on five jets on the kitchen stove, policemen James McHugh and Alfred Tangway learned as they awaited Dr. Cooley. Since the death of Mrs. Baino, Baino lived alone. His absence was noted by neighbors this morning, and his adopted daughter, Mrs. Gustav Blum of Meriden, was notified. She said Baino, a watchman, had each Wednesday and Thursday off, and generally she came here on Wednesdays and took him to Meriden for a visit. However, yesterday she did not follow the routine. Off times, Mrs. Blum, who had a key to the home, would stop and do some housework while Baino was at work. Today, when neighbors remarked at not seeing Baino and she was notified, she found the keyhole plugged, police learned, and after she succeeded in opening the door, she and neighbors found her father on the floor. Gas jets were open, and it was observed a rug had been placed against the door while other doors in the room were shut. Had $185 in wallet. In Baino's wallet, Dr. Cooley found $185, and Mrs. Blum said the money was to pay the mortgage interest due July 1. Baino was born in Atura, Austria, and came to New Britain about 35 years ago. He leaves his adopted daughter and a grandchild. Policeman John M. Liebler was assigned to investigate the collision. He learned Policeman Ware was going south on Linwood Street and Mrs. Sharman west on Hart Street. The right front of the ladder machine collided with the left front and door of the cruiser. The Sharman car was swerved about so that it faced east on Hart Street at the southwest corner. John Baino's adopted daughter, Mrs. Gustav Blum, missed one of her regular visits to check up on him. She missed one weekly visit, one time she'd missed it, and her father opened five gas jets and laid out on the kitchen floor. Would he have held out another week, and then another if she had just visited like she always had? Whether he'd meant to put that on her or not, she'd have to live with that. That's the legacy that the man who'd chosen her to be his daughter despondent over the loss of her mother, left her with. Maybe she'd be the one to discover his body. Maybe she'd never be able to shake the violence of that image. And maybe the trauma of her loss might crack the foundations of the rest of her life. But the real violence and trauma of the story, the lead of this story, according to the New Britain Herald, was the crash of the police cruiser into the car full of five women who hadn't heard the siren. The cars smashed together and spun through the intersection, off Linwood and onto Hart Street. The police cruiser crumpled the windows of the women's car, shooting out streams of shards of glass, 
and the children who'd been called back to their mothers at the siren's first wailing reach up Hart Street. The children now stood in their yards with their mothers holding their shoulders, and they all witnessed the crash and the bewildered screams. Even a quiet suicide is a public act. Even an old man laid out alone on his kitchen floor, drinking the soft hiss of illuminating gas, even that sends shudders of existential fear down side streets. Even the most quiet expression of the will to die sends ripples through our complacent faith that life is our natural state. And the shudders of horror sent from the suicide of John Bano built upon each other as they careened off brick walls and finally erupted into violence. There, at the corner of Hart and Linwood, only four doors down from where Dr. Morad's mother, father, and 19-year-old sister now lived. The doctor had moved them there once he decided it was time they left the enormous family house in Southington that he'd bought several years before. He'd recently declared that he needed that house now all for himself and his young wife and the new family he would surely soon have. This smaller house on Hart Street was convenient for him. It was just two blocks from the hospital and eight blocks from his office, so he could go there every day to take his lunch. He paid the mortgage and the bills, and his mother fussed every day over everything before he arrived, imploring her daughter Samurimus to lay his table setting out just as he liked it. She'd named her daughter after the great Assyrian queen who conquered all the lands to India, Samurimus, the beauty whose name sounded like the cooing of doves, built beneath her sword, the greatest reach of Assyrian Empire, and she ruled for 40 years. The doctor's mother reminded Samurimus to put the small bowl of sugar cubes just there on the table, within his easy reach to the right, so he might, as a natural gesture, select a sugar cube to snap between his fingers, dropping one half back in the bowl and putting the other between his back teeth so he could draw hot tea through it, as the men did in Persia assuming, of course, that the samovar had been prepared correctly. Just one week to the day after the quiet suicide of John Bano caused that crash on Hart Street, on Wednesday, July 2nd, 1941, the doctor saved his fourth suicide. It was on an inside page of the New Britain Herald, and it had this headline spanning two columns. Man with $6,018 in bank deposit leaps to death off high veranda. The two columns of text are separated by a thin vertical line that begins beneath the midpoint of the second line of that headline leaps to death off high veranda. So the thin vertical line begins beneath a point right after the word death, and that line plunges down the newsprint sheet for seven inches. On the right side of the line, below the phrase off high veranda, there's a filler story from a wire service in an inset box. This box takes three and a half column inches before the suicide story resumes beneath it. The left-hand column, beginning right beneath the phrase leaps to death, says, Union Manufacturing Company worker, called stool pigeon by strikers, jumps from third floor. 
On vacation from his work at the Union Manufacturing Company this week, Mosey E. Postella, Postea, aged about 45, a rumor at the York Hotel on Main Street, leaped to his death from the third-floor porch late yesterday afternoon. Dr. Clifton M. Cooley, medical examiner, recorded the case's suicide and reported that Postea died either on the way to New Britain General Hospital or shortly after his admittance to the institution of a broken neck, fractured jaw, and other injuries. When police received a call at 4.15 p.m. that a man had fallen from the third floor of the York Hotel, 485 Main Street, policemen Hanford Dart and Thomas Tierney went to the scene in the police ambulance and found Postea unconscious on the ground in the rear of the hotel. Had $6,018 in bank. A search through Postea's belongings in his hotel room by Dr. Cooley and policeman Delbert Veely revealed that he had a bank book of the Savings Bank of New Britain with deposits amounting to $6,018, representing his life savings. Among other effects, they found $75 in cash, a gold watch, some clothing, and a letter written in Russian. Friends of Postea reported that he was melancholy and despondent during recent days and complained that he was haunted by a stranger who, he believed, threatened to harm him. Often accused him of pigeon, it was, did those last three lines had crumbled as the newsprint had grown crisp. The bottom edge had broken down into tiny shards of text and dust that I'd found at the bottom of the envelope. I searched through the clippings, and I found a seven-inch single-column strip that had continued the story down the page. After the doctor had ripped the story free, he'd folded this part of it, this single-column left-hand strip, back under the main two-column part of the story, and as that fold aged, it became a seam that split, and the fibrous edges began to crumble back. This second piece says, was started, The investigators learned from Fred Burdick, also a resident at the hotel, that as he sat on the third-floor porch, he saw Postea climb over the railing at one section, return to the porch again, and move over a few feet before he leaped to the ground. Burdick told police that he shouted at Postea as he was about to jump, but that it brought no response. Burdick ran to the office and told Charles Horosik, the manager, and Nicholas Mancini, the bartender, and police were notified. Mrs. A. Oktorovich of 485 and a half Main Street, next door north, was looking out of her bedroom window and saw the leap, she told policeman Veely. Vague on trouble. Joseph Dimitro of 485 Main Street reported he met Postea on Main Street yesterday morning, and when he asked him why he was not working, the reply was, Trouble and Postea walked away without further conversation. Mrs. Fred Demko of 212 Hartford Avenue, a distant relative, told policeman Vili that Postea had boarded at her home for 14 years and left four years ago as her family had grown up and the room was needed. She termed Postea a quiet man and said he had saved about $6,000, and since leaving he had visited three or four times a week. Mrs. Demko reported Postea called last Sunday had a nap on a couch, and awoke crying. Asked why he was crying, he told Paul Demko, her son, he had been called a stool pigeon. Of late, the Demkos said Postea had been despondent, but gave no reason. As far as Mrs. Demko knew, Postea's parents are dead, although she said that he left a brother and a sister in Russia. 
Back on the first piece of the story, under the phrase off high veranda from the headline, the filler story in the box says, Trapped Russians Dangerous to Nazis. London, July 2, AP. Pockets of Russian troops operating far behind German advanced panzer units and harrying Nazi communications may achieve valuable results in the Red Army's attempt to check the advance on Moscow, authoritative sources said today. The Russians are attacking the Germans from positions around Shemesel in the Latvian Peninsula and around Bialystok, the sources said. The German forward movement cannot be carried out successfully unless supplies flow freely and the advanced panzer units may be forced to release troops to round up the Russians, who are attacking at times more than 100 miles in the rear. Just beneath that, across the lower border of the box, the suicide resumes. From whom he had not heard for six years. Mrs. Demko reported that Postea was one of the few workers who failed to go on strike during labor trouble at the Union Manufacturing Company plant several months ago. Mrs. Demko, who made her statement in probate court this morning, asserted that the man had been hounded by a group of workers who had been on strike. She said that whenever the men saw Postea, they would call him a scab and other names. She advanced this as the reason for his despondency. Funeral services will be held Friday afternoon at 2 o'clock at a place to be announced by A.P. Carlonis. Burial will be in the Russian Orthodox Cemetery, where Reverend Joseph Dankovich, pastor of the Russian Orthodox Church, will conduct the commitment services. Among my grandfather's other effects, I found a commemorative book with a red cover with gold embossing that says, 1850-1950, 100th anniversary of the incorporation of New Britain. On page 95 of it is a full-page layout of precise drawings of lathe chucks of various sizes and trolley hoists and chain blocks and machined castings, all made by the Union Manufacturing Company. That's where Mosey Postea worked. Page 94 shows an aerial photograph of an immense industrial complex of six block-long, four-storied buildings on either side of the rail line. The end of the accompanying text says, There are hundreds of stockholders in the Union Manufacturing Company. Many of them are employed in this and other New Britain factories, as well as local mercantile establishments. The company's stock is not controlled by any small group of individuals, it depends upon the technical skill, physical ability, and a wide knowledge of manufacturing of its employees. A union of brain and brawn, men and machines, capital and labor, that have combined to make the Union Manufacturing Company what it is today. In a contemporaneous promotional map titled New Britain, the Hardware City of the World, the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad tracks slice like a sine wave across the middle of the city. Arrayed on either sinuous side of the rail line are, in order from west to east, the factories of Tuttle and Bailey, the Stanley Works, Fafner Baring, Corbin Screw, Russell and Irwin, and Landers, Frary, and Clark. About two-thirds over from the start of the map, the New Haven spur of the rail line branches off to plunge southward, and in so doing, it follows the greater curve from the zenith of the last crest down to the bottom of the page. 
at the confluence of the Hartford and the New Haven Spurs, at the spot where those tracks diverge and where they flow back together, there, at the industrial crossroads of the city, was the factory complex of Union Manufacturing. The focus of force of the entire city is where the rail lines meet. And facing east from Elm Street toward the two main buildings of the Union Manufacturing Company, one sees a four-story massive brick building on either side of four rows of tracks. The two buildings are connected by a covered skyway that bridges the rail yard. And from the fourth floor roof, above the left end of that skyway rises a seven-story tower, one of the tallest points in town. And if one sees the several smokestacks behind the building on the left, blackly smoking, one sees a majesty. The doctor's office was exactly three blocks due west from the front gate of Union Manufacturing. As he returned from rounds at the hospital on the afternoon of Wednesday, July 2nd, 1941, he walked with his shoulders back and his chest out, even though it was humid and his skin stuck to his shirt. He was 36 and he wore a suit despite the heat. The leather handle of his medicine bag stuck to his skin, and yet his shoulders did not droop. He wound his way up Main Street, picking his way through the idlers, the shoppers, the grocers' displays, and the debris, the broken branches, and the scattered leaves from yesterday's storm. Nor did his posture slacken as he switched the medicine bag to his left hand to free his right hand to dig three pennies from a sweaty pocket for the newsboy at the corner. He was too hot to tuck the paper under his arm, so he tucked it into his medicine bag as he stepped off the curb to cross West Main and go on through the tall revolving door into the cool lobby of the New Britain National Bank. It was a relief to walk across the cool, dark-veined marble floor to the elevator. He stepped in, and he held his gaze forward through the diamonds of space and the brass scissor gate. He said little to the man in the uniform who sat on a stool and pressed the throttle forward and smoothly pulled it back. The gate was pulled back for him, and he stepped out onto the top floor of one of the tallest buildings in town. There was a short hall that turned sharply to the left, onto a long hall lined with doors with panes of frosted glass on which were stenciled bold black numbers and names. The first window on his right, right after the corner office, said, 705. Dr. Morad, and he passed through the small waiting room, past his secretary's desk, and into his office. He took his jacket off before he sat behind his dark wood desk. His desk was twice as big as his secretary's desk, but when he unfolded the Herald to its full broadsheet spread to search for the story he knew would be there, the paper covered only half the desktop space. If, the day before, before the storm, the doctor had left the bank lobby through the revolving door and, instead of turning right to head home, he had turned left and took the next left to go north on Main. The doctor would have passed the construction site where, six months before, 
The biggest fire in town in over 20 years destroyed the Hotel Clifton, the Growers Outlet, the Lift Shuts Department Store, the Service Shoe Store, Butterfly Hats, and Lester Pants. The air was thick and yellow, and the unrelenting sun would oppress him as he walked through the weary paths of other people slowed with sweat as they walked up Main Street, past Coronet Corset Shop, Stately Floors, Hub Radio, and 20th Century Lunch. On the next block, the doctor would see Chazinski and Sons furniture, and directly above that, the window of the small apartment that was the first home he'd had in America. And it was just four doors down from the York Hotel, where at any moment, Mosey Postea would jump from the third floor veranda. That was the fourth suicide that my grandfather saved. After I finally put my grandfather's suicide stories in order, I cataloged them, I coded them in 27 categories, and I built a database of their vital characteristics. And I reread the story of Mosey Postea, and I was struck again by the poignant pain I saw in every phrase. I wanted to see his death more clearly, so I sorted the stories for those who leapt. This one is from March 30th, 1946 almost five years later. Man jumps from second floor home, leaps out window, lands in shrubbery uninjured. Stanley Gatawala, 38 of 840 Stanley Street, is at New Britain General Hospital with body injuries, the extent undetermined, as a result of his jumping out the second story window of his home last night, when, police learned, his wife, Mrs. Mary Gatawala, was unable to get a doctor to quiet his nerves. His condition is not listed as critical. Detailed by Death Sergeant Rosario Tata, who received the report at headquarters, policemen Raymond Corcoran, William McCarthy, August Ziegler, and Victor Dennis found Gatawala in some shrubbery, where he landed after the jump from the front window. Mrs. Gatawala told police her husband had been under medical treatment for seven years and had asked her to go to a nearby store and call his doctor to quiet his nerves. She gave him a pill and expected to find him asleep on her return, she said, but she informed him she could not get the doctor, and he opened the window and jumped out. New Britain had 66 doctors for 69,000 people, but Dr. Morad was its sole psychiatrist. So anyone worried enough by their erratic behavior or their neurotic loops of aberrant thoughts, but who still possessed the wherewithal to seek help, they would either come to him or he'd see them on consults at New Britain General. He was about a 12-minute walk from his office at 55 West Main to Stanley Gatawala's apartment at 840 Stanley Street, if you hurried. But the doctor was a busy man, and it was late. 840 Stanley Street is a four-story apartment building on a slight slope. On its street-facing side, the second story is only 18 feet up. The windows on that building each open onto just three feet by two feet of space. So, rather than jumping out the window, Stanley Gatawala must have 
crawled through it and tumbled out over his shoulder, so he landed in the bushes looking up. He stayed in the shrubbery until the cops came. It's reported both that he was uninjured and also that he suffered injuries as yet undetermined. It's hard to die from just 18 feet. Stanley could have gone up to the roof. Why did he jump? Let's take him at his word and assume he needed to quiet his nerves, making the psychological torment he felt manifest as a physical injury might give it borders, and that might somehow calm him down. Yes. Also, though, consider this. To fall is to just let go. It's to drop the resistance we all must maintain against the pull of the world. The fear of falling is a primal fear, one of the first things we ever fear, because to make yourself as a person, you must separate yourself up from the pull of the earth. You must always brace yourself and rise up. The self itself, the body and the consciousness, is a painful separation that it exhausts us to maintain. The man who falls seemed, for days or weeks or months before he fell, to walk along the edge of a chasm. The man who falls lets go, and he lets the world smash him. And I don't think Stanley was thinking of death when he let himself drop. I think he just wanted it to stop. The New Britain Herald called Mosey e Postella Postea, a name that appears nowhere else, in either its main form or its secondary parenthetical, in any surviving records I can find. He appeared only occasionally in the public record at all, and when his existence was noted, it was as Moses Postola, or Moses Postello, or when he showed a brief tenacity of presence by appearing in three consecutive city directories from 1936 to 1938, it was as Mirza Postella. Postea, P-O-S-T-E-G-L-A, looks like an incorrect correction of something caught between Spanish and Italian, unless it's an awkward transliteration of postulia, a word in several Slavic languages for bed. Postella, P-O-S-T-E-L-L-A, looks Spanish, but more likely is a corruption of postilla, which was shorthand for the Latin phrase postilla verba textus, which means after those words of the texts, a medieval expression for a note in the margin. From the 13th century commentaries of Nicholas Trevay through to theologians after Luther across the Germanic world, postilla simply meant a homily, which is, after all, only an extended commentary after a particular selection of holy words from this holy text. In the 16th century in France, it was written as apostille, like an intimate of Christ. Mirza, M-U-R-Z-E, however, is clearly a corruption of Mirza, M-I-R-Z-A, an old Persian honorific for a prince, which came to be used as a high title of Tatar nobles from Kazan on the banks of the Volga all the way down to Astrakhan on the shore of the Caspian Sea. This rich immigrant, this man with $6,000 who lived in a cheap rented room, he was about the same age as the doctor's father, 
My great-grandfather, Jacob Morad, was in 1923 when he opened Jacob Morad Grocery at 547 Main, a half block north of the York Hotel. In 1920, the doctor was 15 and had traveled from Persia to the British Mandate of Mesopotamia and then to India and Provence before he and his mother and his little brother were allowed to immigrate. He journeyed for five years with his mother and his little brother to be reunited with his father, who he hadn't seen since he was 10 and his brother was two, during which time he had seen men from their village gutted by Kurdish horsemen's swords, and he had seen from their ox cart young girls taken for evil purposes, and he had seen babies abandoned in the snow as they rode 600 miles to a refugee camp near Baghdad, while his father who seemed old when they finally saw him again, had worked the whole time on an assembly line in Connecticut, casting bearings for motor cars. In 1908, the young doctor was just three years old, and that's when Jacob Morad first left Persia as one of the first members of the Assyrian mission of the South Congregational Church of New Britain. He journeyed with 60 other Assyrian men from their villages to the factories of Connecticut where they could earn up to two or three dollars each day, and they could send most of that home. The South Church let the Assyrians join the services in the main chapel, and when the first Assyrian in New Britain, a revered elder named Baba Jones, when he was out of town at a peace conference or a conference of Assyrian elders in New York, or he was otherwise indisposed, my great-grandfather, Jacob Morad, would take his place, and he would climb the pulpit Sunday mornings to translate the sermon. To incarnate the Holy Word into Assyrian, which is a form of Aramaic and is the closest any living language comes to speaking in Jesus' tongue. My great-grandfather would preach to the sixty other Assyrian men gathered there. He would preach in the language Jesus used with his apostles. The Assyrian men of New Britain lived several to a room, and they cooked a communal stew in a big pot each night. They worked every shift they could any day but Sunday. They set every dollar they could aside or they sent it home. They worked almost solely to support their wives and families and to build up enough money to bring them over. Few of the Assyrian men of New Britain could read, so most asked Jacob Morad to read the letters they received from Persia out loud to them, to give them news of home and to write out their replies. And each summer, the Assyrian mission sent him back to the villages of northern Persia to gather the Protestants amongst them and exhort them to look out for each other. Each summer for several years, he would see his family again in the village of Babari, where he was still seen as a learned man, where the people still called him rabbi and honorific for an esteemed teacher. When he returned in the summers, he'd take work painting houses, which could take him far away for weeks, as far even as Azerbaijan, before he'd come home and soon need to leave again. He returned to Persia each summer until 1915, when the Tsar recalled his far-flung regiments to Petersburg. One of those regiments had ensured the protection of the Assyrians, from south of Lake Ermia all the way north through the Hakari Mountains and into the Armenian highlands. The Russians pulled back without warning, and the Turks rushed in to eradicate the Assyrian nation. It took months for him, it's said, to hear if his family had been killed. The family wasn't reunited until 1920, after he'd secured the necessary visas, tickets, and money. And Mary Morad, 
and her two sons, Philip and Vincent, made the passage in steerage on a ship from Marseille with all the other Assyrians from Babari who'd also made it through all they'd gone through. The whole way, the whole five days, the Assyrian women who were huddled in steerage told each other the same comfortable stories that they all knew of life back in Babari, and they laughed as much as they could to keep their children's spirits up. My grandfather was 15. I don't know the name of the ship or where it landed, but I know Jacob Morad was there to meet them, and when he heard that some Assyrian orphans had been brought along with the families, he told the immigration officers that they were his children too, so they wouldn't be sent back to France. The immigration officers let him claim an extra son and an extra daughter, but they refused to let him take another supposed son, who was the same age as the extra son he'd already claimed, and the two boys looked nothing alike. The boy who Jacob Morad couldn't save somehow slipped away and made his way to New Britain. He grew up and he worked there. He married, he had children, and he lived a good full life within the Assyrian community of New Britain. And he remembered how Jacob Morad had tried to save him. The Morad family wasn't reunited until five years after Jacob had last seen his wife and sons. My grandfather was now 15, and his father took a one-bedroom apartment for them all to share over a furniture store at 521 Main, on the other side of an alley from the York Hotel, and two doors south of where his father would open Jacob Morad Grocery in 1923. A grocer back then kept all the goods behind the counter, and the customer asked the grocer for each thing she wanted. A grocer who spoke Assyrian would draw Assyrian customers, and he would make things easier for them. Think of the women who'd just come over from villages in Persia and now had to set up house and feed their men and children. New housewives who suffered from unresolved compound traumas and who knew none of the American products. Jacob Morad could help them. Each year of college, my grandfather, who was always competitive, came home for the summers and opened a small fireworks store right next door to his father's grocery. He'd make more money than his father did, and his father would be proud. The Jacob Morad grocery failed in 1926, and Jacob got work again, painting houses. genocide spilled over from Anatolia through the Armenian highlands into Persia, Jacob Morad's young wife Mary fled with her sons, some cousins, and some nephews and nieces, including a teenage niece racked with typhus who they'd wrapped in blankets and stretched out on the rugs they'd piled up on a crossboard in the back of their ox cart. The niece's fever burned so fiercely that it fused the bones in her neck. She needed constant nursing as she went, and the pre-adolescent doctor daubed water on her lips. They rode for months in one desperate stream of a ragged caravan of 75,000 Assyrians through rocky hills to the safety of British-held lands. 
and they passed through villages of Persians who came out of their homes to watch them as they rode through. Some Persians spat at them and called them traitors and infidels, and others keened in sympathy and rent their garments as the Assyrians passed. The Assyrians were always on guard against the constant threat of a band of Kurds or Turks who'd sweep their swords like scythes from horseback as they passed their carts and who'd fire their revolvers at the backs of those who fled the road. A soldier could stop a cart, dig through their belongings, and take whatever he wanted. So Mary Morad sewed a three-inch stack of Russian banknotes into a worn cloth sack, and she hid it under all the rugs, deep beneath the rigid, burning back of her fevered niece, where it was safe, for most men feared the contagion. There were over 500 rubles, and she showed them to the young doctor before she hid them. The banknotes were stacked with several doled and plain kopeck notes the length of a boy's finger, on top of several different layers of notes that grew simultaneously in size, ornament, and denomination until the bottom of the stack, where there were two 100-ruble notes that were so grand that each had to be folded in half, and still they were larger than the next largest bill, the 25-ruble note that bore the portrait of Alexander III. When he unfolded it, each of those 100-ruble notes showed a portrait in indigo of Catherine the Great, her features mannish, English, and dour, in a lace-neck dress, fur stoles over each shoulder, and a sash of moire across her chest. Her face was angled to the right, and she peered with mild contempt slightly down at her portraitist, the engraver, the printer, and the young doctor, who saw the empress recur as a ghost in the rightmost fourth of the banknote in a space left blank. She was a sepia after-image watermark stain that showed when he held it up to the light. The young doctor could read Russian, and he read on the back, for counterfeiting of these bills, the guilty will be subject to have their rights taken and exiled to hard labor. That stack was a good year's worth of Jacob Morad's wages, and maybe it was enough to get them to America. By the time the doctor's family would reach Marseille years later to await their Atlantic passage, however, the Tsar's family had been killed in Petersburg, the Bolsheviks had printed new Soviet notes, and all those bank notes they'd smuggled out were worthless. headline says, Man with $6,018 in bank deposit leaps to death from high veranda. $6,018 in 1941 could buy a new Ford convertible and a 16-room duplex in good condition in a good neighborhood. And if used shrewdly and with the grace of God, it might almost be enough to secure the safe passage of a brother and sister from Russia. But Mosey Postea had failed to strike, and the war broke open eastward after Hitler amassed four million soldiers on Soviet borders in the spring and invaded Lithuania, the Ukraine, and Belarus on the 22nd of June. 
A wide swath of cratered, blood-soaked fields spread across all of Europe, from the Black Sea to the Baltic, beneath bombs and the slaughter of prisoners. Mosipostea had failed to strike, and as the Herald said, he was melancholy and despondent during recent days. They found among his final effects a letter in Russian. Dr. Morad would have liked to read that letter. He knew enough Russian still to catch the basic facts and the simpler emotions. Did that letter carry the news that finally broke him? His brother and his sister that he'd left in Russia. Had something tragic happened to them? He'd failed to strike, I think, so he could keep earning the money that he needed to save them. Mosey Postea napped on the couch and awoke in tears. All his money was now worthless and all he'd worked for had fallen apart. I wanted to understand, so I sorted the clippings for those who leapt. This story was from six years later. The left edge of its first piece was ripped diagonally down almost all the way across an adjacent story about the British motion picture industry. In the story's continuation, its second piece on another page was ripped out roughly in the shape of France. Man plunges out third story window. Hospital reports, Broad Street resident in critical condition. Victim cannot explain. Returning home about 2.50 a.m. today, Joseph Blagoslavsky, 24 of 241 Broad Street, undressed and then plunged through a window of his third-story bedroom to an alleyway 26 feet 2 inches below, according to policeman John Savonis. Blagoslavsky, an overseas veteran of World War II, is in a critical condition at New Britain General Hospital, he has a possible skull fracture, a possible broken pelvis, a compound fracture of the left hand, and a right foot fracture. He was unable to explain just what did happen, but he told police he had drunk some whiskey and beer before going home. Death Sergeant William J. Graybeck was notified, and Sergeant Lawrence Coffey and Policeman Savannah, Stanley Gwarak, Philip Silvestro, and John Nolan Jr. went to the spot. Policeman Savanis learned that Blagoslavsky's sister, Mrs. John Glasky, was on the sidewalk across the street when she heard a noise. She and Victor Sadis of 94 Booth Street found her brother, who was covered with a blanket when police arrived. The policeman learned from Mrs. Glasky that Blagoslavsky had just arrived home. There were no lights in the bedroom, and furniture between the bed and window was knocked over. The alleyway between the building and the block at 245 Broad Street is 13 feet 8 inches wide, Policeman Savannah said. Of this, 2 feet 8 inches is a cement walk, and the, continued on page 2, man plunges out window, continued from first page, rest is hard ground. Blagoslavsky was found 7 feet away from the wall of his home. From within his contusions, casts, gauze, and traction, with whatever lucidity he could gather, Joseph Blagoslavsky tried to recall how he'd stripped for bed in a dark miasma and, it's assumed, walked into a chair, 
bumped into the nightstand and pushed over the mirror, which bounced back off the wall and hit him back against the chair, which might have been the last straw. My examination of the scene suggests that a street lamp on the corner of Broad Street bent a wedge of yellow gaslight around the next building's street edge of brick to slice slantwise across the alley's packed dirt. That hard edge of yellow light dims as one steps further into the alley, and one could now see how his body starts with his arm bent back from beneath his shoulder, and one can see his chin dug into the dirt right next to the two-foot, eight-inch wide sidewalk of concrete, which he just missed, the mathematics of which are apparently worthy of note. He fell 26 feet in two inches and landed out from the base of the wall seven feet. The arc tangent of the latter by the former shows his drop took him 15 degrees out from the vertical axis of the wall. It was a plunge, yes, not a leap. He dropped with very little horizontal momentum, and the size of the window suggests he must have sort of spilled out of it. In a surge of vertigo, the spirit collapses within the flesh, which feels like falling even if you're standing in your room. He collapsed within himself, so it's all the same if he just spilled through the open window and plunged down. He turned over once and twisted his shoulder back up before he hit seven feet from the base of the wall, which suggests, I don't know what, but is worthy enough to note, and is enough to warrant continuation of the story onto another page, I guess, as if amassing one more detail, adding one last stroke of precision to the scene, might tell us what it all means. What it meant for Joseph Blagoslavsky might always be a wretched pain. Joseph Blagoslavsky, who was 24, broke his hand and his foot and probably his pelvis and his skull. His body had done better in war than in what was after. At the start of 1942, Dr. Morad volunteered with the local draft board and determined which conscripts were mentally fit to be deployed. He was the one who had, most likely, cleared Joseph for service. And the doctor turned 43 the day after Joseph let go and hit the earth. On the brick-faced back of the four-story York Hotel, between its reaching wings of rooms, looking out over the small gravel courtyard where Mosey landed, were three railed porches, one above the other, from the second story on up to the fourth. On November 15, 1940, after negotiations with the management at Union Manufacturing broke down, an estimated 275 employees, most of them members of the local union of the CIO, went out on strike. The workers demanded a week's vacation with pay in 1941, along with a five cent an hour wage increase, a minimum of 50 cents an hour, revision of the piecework system, and the requirement that union manufacturing henceforth only employ union members. Within a few days, the strike grew to include all but 18 of the 375 employees. The plant was almost completely shut down. Those 18 who wouldn't strike got into a series of escalating altercations with the strikers. 
Those who tried to drive through the front gate found their cars surrounded by angry men who rocked their cars from side to side and threatened to flip them over. Those who tried to scale a side fence were often chased off by strikers who'd lain in wait for them. Five cops were detailed to the scene to try to keep the peace. The strike lasted for three bitter weeks before the CIO and union manufacturing reached a settlement that included an immediate pay increase and a week's paid vacation for everyone the following summer. This was only a preliminary agreement meant to restore a basic sense of order and get the plant running again. Deeper negotiations on a broader agreement would have to take place the following spring. Well, in June 1941, however, after five weeks of negotiations towards that broader agreement, a stalemate had been reached again. After a brokered meeting between representatives of union, the CIO, and the state labor department ended in a deadlock, it was decided to adjourn and reconvene July 10th for further discussion. The conference couldn't be held sooner, as the company would be closed for the intervening week when the company would grant its employees a week's vacation, which it was required to do because a union had won that week of vacation the previous fall. So Mosey was home from work because the factory was closed because of what the other men had won by going on strike. Mosey had needed to work to save more money to send for his people, and they called him a scab and a pigeon for that. They hounded him, and they haunted him on the street. It was June 30th, and all production would have to stop for a week. On July 2nd, the same day that the Herald told the story of Mosey Postea, the Herald also reported that the people of New Britain had suffered a week-long, sweltering 93-degree heat wave. A shirt soaks through, with or without a jacket, and the citizens of New Britain moved in an aggressive swoon. The air was insipid and tense, and for that week that ended June and started July, the Union men, who keenly remembered how they hadn't gotten paid when they stood together as brothers that past fall, when 357 employees honored the picket all the way through the end, leaving only 18 worms and pigeons who crossed the line and got paid, those 357 Union men would be loud coming out of taverns and tumble out electric to the street. Mosey sat in an undershirt soaked with sweat. He sat, I think, between his table and the sink and thought he heard a clamor from the street like when all mankind goes mad at once. Mosey left his room, walked past the stairs heading up and past the stairs heading down and through the door to the porch, which he crossed in two steps and lifted his leg over the rail. He shifted his weight up to straddle it. He might have glanced up just then to see six feet away, sprawled back in a folding chair, Fred Burdick, with his hands stuck holding a cigarette against his mouth. The two men could have been no more than two arm lengths apart. If Postea looked away to lift his other leg over the rail, and if Burdick said like a question, Hey, the heels of Postea's shoes would slide from the bottom of the rail so his toes pointed down. And when Postea glances down, Burdick again might say, Hey! and Postea feels a vertiginous surge through the pounding hollow of his chest that turns his face to the sky. His heart is flesh which bursts. His mind is a chorus of steam. If he climbed back over the rail to the safety of the veranda, and if Burdick would even almost try to speak, Mosey would suddenly turn and scramble back over the rail and leap. 
Burdick would yell as he lunged up from his chair, and when he leaned out over the rail, he would see, down a floor and to the left, Mrs. Oktorovich, who had been sitting at her window and hoping for a breeze, and who now looked down at the body on the gravel, with its shoulders turned against its legs, its head bent back and broken, facing up, and its broken chest, racking for breath. Mrs. Oktorovich could trace the fall back up, see Burdick at the rail, scream, and run to set the chain. Burdick could step back, still have his cigarette in his fingers, drop it, and step on it, flush with shame. And at that exact moment, the yellow sky broke, and in came tempest winds, a downpour of swirling rain, and continuous thunder in all directions, and a storm of splitting lightning strikes that ripped the sky. It was a terrifying storm, the Herald reported. Production of defense materials in several factories here was held up or hindered by the severe electrical rain and windstorm which descended on the city. The Skinner Chuck Company had to close down after the storm and remain closed all night as power was completely shut off after two transformers located to the rear of the plant were struck by lightning and put out of commission. At the Stanley Works, a pump house over a well was struck by lightning and totally destroyed. Lightning also caused a fire in the boiler house. Electrical disturbances burned out motors on a bonderizing unit and on the conveyor system in the packing room, and in addition, an air compressor in building 106 was damaged. Production at the New Britain Machine Company stopped for three to four hours as the electrical disturbances affected motors. The storm increased the water in the city's reservoirs. At Shuttle Meadow Lake, it was reported the 45-minute rainfall added 0.93 inches to the supply. The rainfall there was considered lighter than that of the center, where the waters gushed along the gutters. Manholes in several parts of the city were filled, and in some instances, the covers were lifted off, it was reported to police headquarters. Limbs of trees in many sections were damaged, and some hung against wires. The storm put approximately 500 telephones out of commission. The damage was caused in all parts of the city, and one of the principal causes was the striking of cables by bolts of lightning, which caused a break in the insulation, allowing rainwater to flow into the cracks and reach the wires. As Miss Rachel C. Colby, director of the Visiting Nurse Association, was passing at West Main and High Streets, a bolt of lightning struck a big tree and her umbrella was wrenched from her hand. She was uninjured, but her pet dog was affected as it whirled about in circles for a time. Soon after the storm came, housewives in all parts of the city went to cupboards to bring out candles to illumine their homes as lights went out. The lights failed when limbs were broken off tree trunks by the strong wind to crash down upon and break electrical wires as transformers were burned out and transformer fuses were blown. About 25 customers in the Nary Tavern at Myrtle and Booth Streets stood stock still when the place was plunged into darkness. All the fuses had been blown out and part of the insulation dropped, landing on the bar. It was discovered lightning had struck wires leading to the lighting fixtures. Smoke filled the store of Victor Atacunas at 385 Park Street. An overheated motor in the cellar was the cause. A bolt struck the chimney of the home of Mrs. Emily Matchholz at 39 Market Street. The roof of the home of Joseph Poglich at 69 First Street was struck by lightning. A flash of lightning went through the home of William C. Naidi at 81 Linwin Street but did no damage. The storm was so severe that at its apparent center, Police Lieutenant Frank Sherlock described it as worse than the 1938 hurricane. At its height, 
Lightning killed Clement Gagney, 30 years old, and a goat he was milking in a barn on his farm. Mosipostea only jumped about 26 feet. Why didn't he go up to the roof to jump? He was conscious for that long moment, turning as he fell. He might have lived through that. Can you imagine the shame? This one is from February 1, 1944, and it's the 52nd clipping. The condition of Miss Elsie Huber, 24 of 38 Henry Street, who received two broken legs, a broken hip, and body and head injuries, and a plunge from the third-story veranda at her home Monday night, remained critical at New Britain General Hospital today. After the plunge, she remained on the snow-covered ground for one and a half hours, and also suffers from exposure. It was reported she had a poor night. The second story won't kill you, and the fourth story almost certainly will. The third story really should kill you, but it might just break your body and you might live disfigured and brutally exposed. The third story is the most desperate. Mosey could have gone up to the fourth floor or the roof, but the third story is where the will to die erupts beyond all logic into the ground. The deepest despair is in that low height. This is From the Envelope of Suicides by Ben Morad. Sound and music by Wilson Vidiner and Courtney Sheedy. This has been made possible by a grant from the Regional Arts and Culture Council. If you are considering suicide, please stop for a moment and look at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Think about it. At that site, you can find resources and how to contact someone who can help you talk things out. That's suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Or you can call them at 1-800-273-TALK. For more about this project, including notes on this episode, please visit enveloppofsuicides.com and follow at Ben Morad. I'm Stephanie Barr. Thank you. Thank you.